I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the LRB podcast. I'm Malin Hay, an assistant at the LRB. Joining me today is James Lasden, a novelist, screenwriter and poet, whose most recent book is the novel Afternoon of a Fawn. He's also written several pieces for the LRB on Las Vegas, police procedurals and the Westboro Baptist Church, among other things. He has a piece of the current issue of the paper reviewing a book by Richard White called Who Killed Jane Stanford? A Gilded Age Tale of Murder, Deceit, Spirits and the Birth of a University, which we're going to talk about today. Hello, James. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks so much for inviting me. So Jane Stanford was the co-founder of Stanford University, who in 1905 was murdered and her murder was never solved or perhaps not until now. When she was on holiday in Hawaii, she drank some bicarbonate of soda that turned out to be laced with strychnine. There were quite a few people who could have done the murder. But before we get on to that, um, James, would you just start by telling me who Jane Stanford was and why the Stanfords decided to set up a university? Yes, um, the Stanfords, Jane and Leland Stanford, were this immensely wealthy Gilded Age couple. Leland Stanford made his money through the, the Central Pacific Railroad and then I think the South also. He apparently wasn't a very good businessman himself. He sort of got lucky, but they made it an absolute fortune. And they had one son, Leland Jr., who they were devoted to, seems to have been a little bit of a prodigy, or certainly they thought he was. And they would travel with him in great style through Europe. And he was known to sort of, uh, he spoke fluent French, and he would sort of lecture these these eminent painters on how to paint. And um, he collected various sort of artifacts and bric-a-brac uh, as a child. And then at the age of 15, he died of typhoid in Florence. And his parents were distraught, very, very upset. They were devoted to him, and they were also spiritualists. They had signed on to the very popular sort of fad of spiritualism, which, I mean, people from Queen Victoria, Ulysses Grant, they used to actually have seances with Ulysses Grant. And Jane in particular was very devoted to the idea that the life sort of continued in a different way after death and that you could communicate with the dead and so on. And they made their way slowly back to the States and they were bringing the body of their son with them over several months. And in the course of that time, he seems to have appeared to the parents in various forms, I, I, well, depending on the reports, either in dreams or via psychics and hired mediums. And giving them the idea that they needed to found a university in his memory. And so by the time they got back to Palo Alto, um, I think that was sort of 1884, they had this idea that they were going to found a a university in his memory, which um, very soon after his funeral, uh, they started building on their estate in, in Palo Alto, Stanford University, which was and still is actually properly called Leland Stanford Junior University. 
And right at the heart of the university was a, his, a mausoleum for him, which also had room for his father and his mother, uh, a museum, which was full of his collection, and a memorial chapel. So it's like a, a large memorializing enterprise. It's right at the heart of this university. And uh, it opened a few years later. And Leland Stanford Sr. died a few years after that. Is that right? So Jane Stanford yes, then did. became the kind of sole surviving founder. Exactly. Uh, he died. He's put in the mausoleum next to his son. And she gets to run the place. And she sort of finds her mission in life. She hadn't done very much before this, according to Richard White, the author of the book. I mean, she had basically played billiards and socialized and not done very much else. But with this Memorial University, she found her mission in life. She happened to be the, reputedly the richest woman in San Francisco. So she had a lot of money. And uh, they went, I mean, before, I think it was before her husband died, they went looking for someone to run the university. And they couldn't get their first choices. I mean, you know, the best people were all spoken for by Harvard and other places. And I think the guy they found was their fourth choice. He was a, an ethologist, a scientist, a real scientist, sort of cataloging, I think, cataloging the fish of the South. But saw an opportunity here. They promised him that, you know, he would, he would be able to turn it into a real research university, which is what he wanted to do, and that he'd be able to hire and fire. He'd have basically control of the place. And they promised him a huge amount of money. And he was tempted and he took the offer. And very soon he started clashing with with Jane, especially after after Leland Senior died. Uh, for one thing, he particularly disdained spiritualism, and 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 in fact remarked that he, he it embarrassed him, or at least the author remarks that that it embarrassed uh, it embarrassed this man uh, David Starr Jordan to think that he owed his job to a, the the advice of a dead child. And in fact, the advice of this dead child and then the dead husband was what were these two were the were the principal uh, advisors to Jane. I mean, she would consult with her her dead husband and child before she made any decision, which made it very hard to oppose her in anything. So she functionally continued to basically hold most of the power in the university, even though Jordan was the sort of president. Yes, and they were they were constantly sort of you know, going up against each other because they had completely different values and she wasn't really honoring the independence that she had promised him. And he was, he was, I think he knew from fairly early on that she, he had to in some way manage her and he thought he could do this by just flattering her and she was very amenable to flattery. But she also had a really iron will and it turned out he could flatter her and he could be obsequious and he could get some results, but he really couldn't change her mind over big things. So they were bound to have an explosive clash at some point. And I think the first or the, the, the main one that really put them at war with each other uh, came when a member of the faculty, an economist called Edward Ross, who, like Jordan, was considered a progressive and an enlightened person at the time. Uh, it's one of the interesting things about the book is the what constituted progressive politics at that time, um, because these were the people who would, you know, be in our time would also, you know, occupy the kind of progressive positions in their university. But a lot of the actual views they held were very incompatible with what we consider progressive, principally eugenics. 
both uh, Jordan and um, this guy, uh, Edward Ross, completely espoused this sort of racial hierarchy um, way of looking at um, human civilization. Um, anyway, the, the quarrel wasn't over that. The quarrel came principally because um, Ross was sort of pro-labor. He was oppo- very opposed to the railroads, and he gave a lecture. I mean, accounts differ, but he seems to have um, insulted the, the, the railroad companies in general and the Central Pacific, or the Pacific Central in particular. And Jane got got wind of this and she demanded that Jordan fire this guy Ross which would be a complete direct attack on academic freedom and on the kind of academic freedom that that she had pretty much guaranteed and that prevailed by that time in most decent universities there'd already been this this quarrel had already sort of begun with with the teaching of of evolution and most self-respecting universities had accepted that and had a, and had sort of adopted the principle that the faculty could publish the findings of their research and were free to do that and wouldn't be interfered with so she didn't like what she was you know what this guy was saying about the railroad companies and she demanded that Jordan fire him so Jordan was put in a very difficult position and really an impossible position because if he did fire him, Stanford would, the reputation of Stanford would be tremendously damaged. And if he didn't fire him, uh, his relationship with his his patron, his boss, would be irreparably damaged. So he, he was in a diff- difficult position, but he handled it really badly. I mean, he, he basically tried to please everybody. It's quite a complicated little dance that he does, and it all ends very, very badly. Ross does get get fired and the university's reputation suffers and Jordan's relationship with Jane Stanford becomes completely ruined to the point that from that point onward, she had more or less decided that she was going to get rid of him. But meanwhile, he, you know, in his obsequious, rather sniveling way, because he was always flattering her in the middle of all this, he was very devoted to building Stanford into a real place. So he would take all kinds of abuse from her uh, with the kind of longer game in mind of making Stanford into a into a reputable place. Um, but that was the first big quarrel between them. Do you think that Star Jordan genuinely cared about Stanford as an institution or was he more self, self-involved? I mean, was he just trying to keep his own job? Yeah, well, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, he had a fairly high opinion of himself, it seems, from, the, from, from White's book. He regarded himself as indispensable to the survival of Stanford, which is why he didn't resign at this point where I think many, many people running a university would have simply resigned at that point because it was an untenable situation. The thing is, apparently, he wasn't the only person who regarded himself as indispensable to the the survival of Stanford. So there, there may have been... A bit of everything. I'm sure there was some ego wrapped up in it. And as he de- as he becomes more and more sort of pressured and stressed and warped by Jane's even more powerful will, and obviously she has the means and the, you know, all the money to kind of back it up, he behaves in more and more wretched ways. He becomes very tyrannical at the university. He, picks, he gets into fights with other faculty. He fires people at will. And it becomes a very unpleasant um a very sort of toxic atmosphere begins to 
uh, prevail at the, at, on the campus. And you, you, I think, if, you know, stepping back a little from, from White's book, you do begin to see a man who's been absolutely sort of crushed and humiliated by this person um, and has taken it. Now, whether that gives him a, a, a motive for murdering her, which he's he is he is in the end possibly i mean he's regarded by some people as possibly involved in her fatal poisoning right so we should say at this point that the murder was never solved right that there was no nobody was arrested so it's not that jordan ended up being the murderer of jane stanford he just was a suspect right he was he was one of of many sort of poison rivers that flow into this uh, this final bottle of bicarbonate of soda that's laced with strychnine. Um, but yeah, so could you kind of tell a bit of the story of, of the actual murder? I mean, how did Jane Stanford go from sort of a spiritualist who was probably, I mean, sounds pretty unpleasant, but not kind of, you know, necessarily a murder victim to actually being a murder victim? What what happened? She seems to have become increasingly sort of uh, eccentric and devoted to this this, this spiritualist uh, belief. And at one at a certain point, she begins to um, get obsessed with the sexuality of of female students. And um, uh, had um, had Stanford been coeducational from the beginning? It was yes, it was in its founding charter that it was co-educational, and she was in favor of that at the at the very beginning. And and uh, Jordan was very in favor of it, and she began to sort of chafe at that. She was getting close to the Catholic Church. She was you know she was she was very sort of Christian as well as for her there wasn't a, a big difference. I mean, I, it was a continuum, the beliefs of Christianity and spiritualism, and she was also getting very drawn to the sort of Catholic. Church. She never did convert, but she was getting very drawn in that direction and increasingly opposed to anything that sort of smacked of sexuality and didn't want it at the university, tried to get, tried to end the co-educational uh, mission of the university. She was thwarted in that, but she was also maintaining a similar kind of regime on the home front uh, where she, you know, she was running this she had several homes, but one her main home was this this large mansion in in the Nob Hill area of San Francisco, and there she had uh, servants. She had several Chinese servants, one of whom Ah Wing is quite important to the story because he has a grudge against her for she manipulated people with money a lot. Uh, she had an English butler uh, named Albert Beverly who's also part of the story <laughs> and she but the, the the most interesting character was her sort of secretary paid companion traveling companion a woman called bertha burner who lived some of the time in the mansion but often was traveling with with jane and was very close to her and was her sort of confidant but um she was one of these figures who who uh who's quite educated, quite genteel, but w without any power or money. So she had to sort of navigate Jane's personality and whims a lot. And she, they were increasingly at odds with each other because she seems to have um, been quite attractive to men. I mean, she had, a, she had, and, and was, wasn't at all straight laced in, the, in Jane's way. And she was tried to have these, she had these relationships, it, it appears. And at every turn, Jane would do everything she could to stop them you know she 
fire the men if they were employed by her or she'd prevent their access to the household. So you can see this kind of tension over uh, this very intimate personal aspect of, of Bertha Berner's life was being controlled increasingly by Jane. So you can feel how a very powerful animus could grow out of that. And so she is also um, someone who is a suspect because she had, she's the only person who's physically present. Well, I, one thing I should say before the, before the fatal, before the fatal poisoning of Jane Stanford, there was an attempted poisoning a month earlier where at the Nob Hill mansion where Jane Stanford uh, was taking a drink of her nighttime Poland spring water and began vomiting and, and, you know, crying for help. And it turned out that this water had rat poison in it. There were various people at the household uh, who could have put it in. There were various people not living in the household who might have had access to it. The, the police were not notified. The, the detectives were hired. Jane herself seems to have been fairly ambivalent about whether, I mean, she couldn't believe anybody, like a lot of very narcissistic people, she couldn't believe anybody would want to harm her. She thought everybody adored her. And she took it sort of half seriously. They fired a maid, but mainly the main effort of sort of investigation after it was, was had to do with covering it up because she, nobody wanted a scandal. She didn't want a scandal. The university certainly didn't want a scandal. And so they sort of papered over it. And they, they got this detective agency involved who were, whose basic uh, skill was covering up things, not, not getting to the truth. And so they were involved. And then a few weeks later, she took a, a trip to Hawaii. She was going to make a world tour to sort of recover from the fuss of all this, uh, or a tour of the, of the East. So they started off. So she and Bernard, Bertha Bernard, go to Hawaii. And there, the murderer strikes again, this time uh, using her, her indigestion powder. She was taking sort of uh, bicarbonate of soda for indigestion. And this time, the person used pure strychnine, put it at the top of the um, bottle of bicarbonate of soda. And she died pretty quickly after swallowing it. When you describe it that way, saying that, you know, she and Bertha went off to Hawaii together, it does sound pretty damning. So why was Berna not arrested? Or why was she not the prime suspect? She was a suspect. And, and after the Hawaii killing, the police were brought in, it was ruled a murder by the medical examiner in Hawaii, and the police were brought in. There was another maid. But what became fairly quickly apparent was that this bottle had been sitting around before they left San Francisco, this bottle had been sitting for six days in the house in Nob Hill. Many people might have had access to it, including Bertha Burner. The servants at the Nob Hill mansion included this this guy, R. Wing, who had um had a pretty good strong grudge. He had a good reason to be to be aggrieved with Jane. Well, with the Stanfords in general. He had been he had looked after one of her brothers who was dying and had been promised a you know a, a legacy or something and the and the guy died and he didn't get his legacy and he tried to, he went back to china but that didn't work out for him and he 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 wanted to come back to san francisco and he could only come back if if jane agreed to take him back so he was very in her power in her thrall and she had promised to make up for this missing legacy by giving him a legacy of her own so here you get this guy who's 
has a reason to be upset with the with the Stanford family for basically cheating him out of a legacy. So he actually has a kind of financial stake. If you ask that the, the question that that you know you're supposed to ask when anybody gets killed, you know who benefits? He benefits. Bertha Burner, yes, she got she got a legacy for, uh, and I think knew about it. Of I think it was fifteen thousand dollars, but she was getting paid very well in the meantime. So she was getting I think two hundred dollars a month, which was more than the interest on on a legacy would produce for her. So she actually doesn't stand to gain anything financially from Jane's death. Jordan, in a sort of abstract way, gets to benefit because the the founding documents, all the legal documents having to do with the founding of Stanford were a complete disastrous mess. There was no legality in them at all. There was an enormous problem to do with the fact that her main advisors in drawing up these documents were ghosts, basically, her son, her dead son and her, and her dead husband, who had no legal standing. And Jordan and this other guy she hired to help her with the, with the legal side, this man called Crothers, uh, were very worried that when the, 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 the whole bequest that she was going to leave in her will to Stanford would be very easily challenged by people saying that she was of unsound mind because, you know, there's all these ghosts involved in the, in the will. And also, I mean, she was driving him completely nuts. So, so, I mean, he had that reason to get rid of her. But he wouldn't want it to look like murder because a murder investigation would run the risk of digging up all this stuff about her that's not going to show her as a very sane person. And he certainly wouldn't want it to look like suicide, which was another possibility that people were were raising because there was a bit of a vogue for suicide by strychnine um, at that time. And in fact, somebody connected with the university had just committed suicide, a woman whose husband had died and who was she was, I think, unwell and just had had enough. So there was somebody sort of close to the circle around the university that had just done it. So there was some discussion of, well, maybe Jane was sort of suicidal. And she certainly talked a lot about wanting to be with her husband and son. I mean, she was very, very obsessed uh, with with passing over into, you know, to rejoin rejoin her loved ones and was so so sort of literally believed that she would that she you know she said quite casually to the Crothers that she intended to keep continue working for the university after she died so you know you're dealing with very you are dealing with very irrational very irrational forces it's quite hard to understand some well it's quite hard to I mean, it, it, this all re- is real, but it's, it's tremendously fantastical. And, you know, when you're trying to solve a mystery, you, you try to find out, well, what could rationally have happened? Who could rationally have had a reason? Why, why would she do this? Why would they do that? It's sometimes quite hard to fathom because some of the pieces of the puzzle are so strange. I mean, even Bertha Burner, who is a fairly enigmatic, interesting, intelligent person but she's a little hard to read uh, from the evidence that survives because you never quite know is she just managing the information is she is she just trying to please various people because she doesn't have a lot of power of her own but she too according to some sources was involved in this spiritualism fad that she she had acted as a medium according to some sources you really it's unless I mean, I found it I mean, hard to imagine what's going on in, in the minds of some of these people. I mean, very interesting to try. Um, but I mean, that's, what, that's the fun of a mystery. To, to, but it really has, it is deeply mysterious. And White sort of does 
come down pretty strongly on the side of Bertha was the murderer. And when it comes to the motive, he probably, like I would probably also think, assumes that she, you kind of had to ignore the financial incentive in the end because she was so sick of working for Jane Stanford. Um, You know, she was controlling her life, her sexual life so strongly, then maybe she just thought it's not worth it. But you seemed a bit doubtful about that. Why was that? I think there is a lot of evidence. I think the most of the evidence that exists, probably more of it points to her, but I don't think the psychological motivation is the strongest with her. Richard White does have an ingenious theory, which comes from a a rather overlooked detail concerning another figure, a rather elusive figure, a man called Schwab, who seems to have run into Bertha Burner at some point, who was a kind of petty crook. He, I think he'd been in prison for fraud or something. And he also had worked at a pharmacy or an apothecary and had access to pure strychnine, which wasn't terribly easy to get hold of. Rat poison was easy to get, to get hold of, but pure strychnine less so. So there's a possible link from you know strychnine to him to Bertha Burner. And he and Bertha may have been romantically involved. So, okay, so there's that, that's... There's motive and opportunity. Definitely opportunity. Where's, what's the motive there? Just the same motive to... to resentment, just I would to say. I mean, resentment. it seems yeah. as though, apart from our wing, the servant, it seems as though nobody had that much of a... Well, I suppose Jordan sort of had a financial incentive, but like you say, it was so risky that I'm not sure he's convincing as a suspect either. So then I suppose if it's not financial, then it has to be kind of just emotional or just a kind of... And she does seem to have inspired a lot of strong strong feelings, mostly negative in other people. That's, that's definitely true. But I think, I mean, if you actually look at what Bertha says about Jane, because she wrote a memoir long after all this was over, it's very affectionate. And yes, they they quarrelled, but you know it could have been strategically affectionate that she was still under suspi- under a cloud for for de- you know for the rest of her life. So you know there's a there's a an opportunistic sort of possible pragmatic motive there. She seems very level headed, and to try to murder someone and and fail, and then a month later to try with the same poison, and think. Why would she imagine she was going to get? She did get away with it, but why? Why would you think you would get away with it? Uh, I mean, it's a huge risk to take. I'm not. I'm not totally convinced. I mean, she just for her to be the murderer, she has to be a very kind of cool, calculating, fairly ruthless person. If she's that cool and calculating, what would she have calculated that she was going to get away with with two attempted strychnine murders on the same person within a month? I mean she would know that she would be seen as a suspect because she's the only person who's sort of physically present at the scenes in both instances. So it's a huge risk to take. But then but somebody must have done it. <laughs> so that's the problem. Uh, it's very, it's very, um, where, where Jordan gets, I mean, I don't think Jordan could have physically placed the poison in it, in either of the, either the pollen spring water or the bicarbonate of soda. But, his behavior is very strange. As soon as he hears of, of Jane's death, he leaves for Hawaii uh, with, I think, one of the family lawyers or another family member, not to investigate her death, not to try to get to the bottom of it, but to cover it up again, to 
get rid of any possible scandal again. And to do that, he has to make it look like it was not a murder. And he manages somehow to take over the investigation and to uh, replace the official, the, the, the police uh, who were involved, who did rule it a murder, and, and, the, and the medical examiner who ruled it a murder, with totally corrupt officials of his own who gave him the the results he wanted. Um, medical people who said, oh, no, she just died of indigestion and fright. Despite the proof, the chemical proof that strychnine was in this 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 bicarbonate of soda, and just sort of detectives who were prepared to say, yeah, it, it was just a a series of sort of strange accidents and servants' quarrels and so on. And did he um, uh, did he succeed in covering up? I he mean, succeeded. What happened to Stanford after Jane's death? They considered it to be a death of natural causes for a very long time, and I think. Until quite recently, the official line at Stanford was that she had died of natural causes. I looked at the Wikipedia Stanford entry. You get a very different picture of Jane from that, actually. Um, they're quite. It's, I think it must have been written. It looks like it was written by, by you know, someone in the uh, PR department at Stanford who then realized that Richard White had written the book and, and put in some new information. I, this, I could be completely wrong about all this, but... She comes out of it as a sort of, you know, a staunch, rather imperious, but staunchly sort of pro-education, and uh, and 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 her spiritualism is very downplayed. Whereas it really was a huge piece of it, uh, you know. Uh, uh, if Richard White is correct, and I mean his book is, seems to be very, very well researched, and he teaches at Stanford, so he's there. And it, and one of the things that got him going on this book was hearing prospective students uh, being taken on tour of the campus and the whole morbid, sordid story of Jane's murder and all the rest of it being very whitewashed to the point that I don't even think that they they discussed the fact that she had been murdered. So the whole sort of morbid legacy of Jane is 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 kind of has had been excluded from the conversation. And it did they they really Right after her death, it was necessary because the will that left a huge amount of money to Stanford could have been contested by her her relatives. So it was very much in their interest to cover it up. And his, you know, he comes out of the of the book saying that that it's um, you know Stanford is basically was a money laundering operation to launder this this. I mean, it's it wasn't criminally obtained this money. It was all the railroad money. But I mean, if you look at how they obtained their money within the law. Uh, you know, it was an appalling, um, appallingly corrupt. And I mean, Leland Stanford Sr. bought his way to the governorship of California and then he became a senator. And under his rule, uh, you, you had genocide of Native Americans on a, on a large scale. Incredible corruption, monopolies. It was a racket. What I'm getting at is I think that at some level, both he and Jane were um, atoning for, you know, they, they were doing this sort of classic atonement for this, this uh, money sort of accumulated by nefarious means. Um, he quotes Ambrose Bierce, the San Francisco um, journalist at one point who wrote this book called The Devil's Dictionary. And under the word restitution, uh, the definition given is the founding of a university. <laughs> um, 
because that's what that was what a lot of wealthy people were doing at, the, at that at that period. You know, you 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 sort of cleanse your reputation by founding a, a university. Before we take a quick break, I want to tell you about a new set of podcasts, events, and book deliveries from the LLB called Close Readings. Listeners to this podcast will have heard Seamus Perry and Mark Ford's episodes about 19th and 20th century poets and Mary Wellesley and Irina Dumitrescu discussing medieval literature. From January next year, both pairs will be starting new 12-part series on their respective periods, and there is also another chance to join our 12-part series on classical literature with Emily Wilson and Thomas Jones, which we've been running this year and will be running again from January. Subscribers to each full series will receive copies of all the books discussed in each episode and access to live online seminars with the hosts and special guests. And this is only available to buy up to the end of this year. We'll close it off at the end of December, so don't delay. You can hear samples of each series on our website and find more details on the links below and details of audio-only purchase options. Or go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or the shop section of our website. This week's episode of the LRB podcast is sponsored by Verso Books. There are few writers about whom opinions diverge so widely as Anthony Pohl, whose dance to the music of time sequence is one of the most ambitious literary constructions in the English language. In his new book, Different Speeds, Same Furies, based on essays first published in the London Review of Books in 2018, Perry Anderson measures Pohl's achievement against Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time. To buy Different Speeds, Same Furies, go to lrb.me forward slash speed or click on the link below. And interestingly now... I feel like a lot of American universities especially are beginning to kind of look more deeply into that history and sometimes look back and think about the extremely kind of dodgy means by which the money for founding their universities was made. But interestingly, at Stanford, it seems like Jordan is the one who's kind of retroactively been expunged from the uh, from the university. I mean, you mentioned that there's a um, there was a, a walkway, is that right, which was named after him, which has now been renamed Jane Stanford Walk because Jordan had this kind of history of endorsing eugenics. What was the university's place in in wider society? I mean, what was the what was Stanford's place in San Francisco what, when these things were happening? Were they public scandals i mean for instance ross's firing was that important to anybody outside the university yes it was these were fair, pretty big scandals i mean locally there are a lot of local papers a lot of uh, i don't know if they were national scandals but yes national in the sense that they mattered to the whole acad- of academia the president of harvard was writing letters to jordan telling him it was going to be really bad for stanford if word got out that one of the faculty had been fired to please the whim of, uh, you know, at the, at the whim of Jane Stanford. And I mean, Jordan knew that. So yeah, these, these are pretty big scandals. And, you know, this was a university that had a, a lot of money behind it. Uh, so people were watching. I mean, Jordan was very ambitious for the university to become one of the leading universities in the country. He had no interest in, in it being a sort of memorial to the dead of the Stanford clan. But Jane... I don't think she, it sounds like she didn't really know what a, what a real university was. I mean, she, she was very keen for the students to be educated in spiritualism, in, in, in you know, the education of the soul, uh, in a very kind of literal way. And she, in fact, got her brother-in-law, who was even more, he was even deeper into all this, this seances and all the rest of it. He lived in Australia. 
had a huge amount of money and was completely devoted to just conducting seances, basically. She got him to endow a chair for psychic research at, at Stanford. You know, you have these two absolutely polar visions of what this place was going to be at war with each other, and the power and the money was in the hands of the of the spiritualists. Uh, so, you know, Jordan had to play his card. You know, he, he in a way he won. He got Stanford onto the map as, and now it's like the number three university in the world. So, um, according to one site um but anyway it's obviously it's a highly regarded university and it's especially a kind of center of science right it's a sort of scientific university yeah yes i mean (laughs) it is of course but it's also it's a strange kind of echoes of the gloomy stanford family outlook i mean even even in the science i mean that's where the stanford prison experiment was conducted i mean which was is generally not regarded as as a very scientific uh, piece of research. Um, you got this sort of awful murder that took place inside the inside the inside the yes inside the memorial chapel, uh, a kind of very brutally sexualized murder in the 1970s. It was originally briefly attributed to the son of Sam, and has its own sort of strange echo of of Jane's kind of horror of sex. I mean, something seems to haunt the place a little bit. But yes, it is obviously one of the great universities. So to that degree, Jordan wins. But then, yeah, in 2019, you know, there was this, in the last few years, there's been this huge, as you say, this great reckoning with the sources of money behind these large not just universities, all kinds of philanthropic, all kinds of cultural institutions. I mean, the, the Sackler Wing at the Met and places like that are all coming under fire. I mean, people have started to think about, well, where, where does this institutional patronage come from? And that that's, goes to the heart of, of the American system because in the States, you know, you get these fortunes that are just so vast since, since the sort of days of the Robert Barons. And, and those are the fortunes that have tended to fund the big cultural institutions of the country. They've tended to be the main source of arts patronage in, in, in this country. There wasn't state patronage in the way that, you know, you saw the Arts Council or something in the, in the UK. And, I mean, there were the land grants that created the state universities. Um, so there, there, is, there is some of that. But there's also this other huge, huge source of, of funding for institutions. And, yeah, they are all being questioned now. And yeah, so so Jordan got his name taken off. It was a building, I think, actually, in 2019. And Jane Stanford's name was put on one of the avenues that crossed the campus. Um, so she wins also in that way. But yeah. I think one of the most interesting things about the way that you tell the story in the piece is that you point out that universities seem to be this kind of peculiar, and maybe it applies to many types of workplaces, actually, but universities especially seem to be this sort of peculiar space where emotions run very high. So there's all of this kind of, I mean, there's some really intense obsessions that are taking hold of the people surrounding Stanford at this time, you know, anger, jealousy, grief, extreme grief, and also this kind of morbid sexual obsession that Jane Stanford had. And you kind of point out that this this feeling that in within universities, there's a kind of claustrophobic obsession with with the kind of petty almost, or not necessarily petty, but at least very enclosed dramas of the space 
do seem to have kind of obtained to this day. And you, you tell a story about when you were um, teaching at a university in the 90s and there was a big scandal because of a number of staff members being being fired. And, and it, it kind of felt extremely sort of life and death. Um, but I'm wondering if, if there's something specific about universities that create that feeling. I, I mean, they are very self-contained worlds, especially where I was teaching was, I mean, they make this distinction between universities and liberal arts colleges, which is where I was teaching. It was a liberal arts college uh, that, that had this kind of blow up. Um, and it was it was a pretty small place. I mean, just a few hundred students in the middle of the countryside sort of very self-contained, isolated place. So everyone's kind of living at each other's doorstep and it becomes a kind of echo chamber. Everything gets massively amplified. And then, you know, if something really dramatic does happen, which was the case at that place, um, you, you feel like you're in the middle of a, a, an incredibly significant, momentous melodrama. And it is all consuming. Um, yes, I mean, the, 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 this was like almost half the faculty were fired in this great sort of war between the president and the, and the faculty. And, um, you know, it was sort of a news story at the time, but, it, but it, it's also a little bit of a tempest in a teapot uh, when, you, when you stand back from it, because you wonder, well, what really was at stake in all this? And it's hard to even remember uh, it was it, it just I think it was just some personality clashes that sort of managed to I mean it, it affected some people badly I mean a lot of people lost their jobs and who who were not able to get jobs again and their livelihoods were at stake so it's not without stakes but it's it's not life and death and I, I I was thinking of this as I as I read the book I think I had just finished reading Victor Serge's memoirs of uh, you know Moscow during the purges. Where you, the atmosphere is not dissimilar, where it's everyone's very paranoid, everyone's second guessing everyone else, but you know the stakes are could are, are very are very different. I mean, you're not going to end up in front of a firing squad, um, but you, the rhetoric in in these in these dramas and university dramas does tend to get very quickly to to sort of use that language. And in fact, the the, the faculty who were up in arms against Jordan described him as leading a reign of terror you know so they were reaching for for sort of met metaphors and historical analogies uh from very you know bloody events um that don't quite apply i mean it's human to do that but sometimes you have to stand back and think well you know is this really such a big deal although in this case i mean in the stanford case it did end up with somebody maybe it, relatedly uh, being murdered <laughs> yes, yes that is true of course, well that's right and 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 which is sort of what makes the book interesting is because that is a rare case of, of of the of the stakes being life and death. Yeah, yeah. It's not usually the, the benefactor that, that gets murdered, but yeah, or that sees themselves as a as a as a likely victim. But yeah, that's what happened in that case. Well, James, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, asking me. You can read James's piece in the current issue of the LRB, which is online now, along with Adam Schatz on the midterms and Tessa Hadley on Josephine Tay. The LRB podcast is produced by Zoe Kilbourne and Anthony Wilkes, and the music is by Kieran Brunt. Music